Welcome to episode 29 of the Philosopher Science Podcast, the podcast about free, libre, and open source software for science. Today, I'm interviewing Jason R. Coombs about the Python setup tools. Hi, Jason. Thank you for being with us today. Happy to be here. How would you introduce yourself to our listeners? So I've been doing Python for over 20 years, and I'm passionate about open source, and, and even for, for the last nine years, was working a job full-time uh, remote development and things and re really enjoyed it. But the things I enjoy the most are Python meetups, contributing Python open source, writing code in Python across, you know, uh, lots of domains, including web applications and patching and things. Okay. So you're uh, by trade more of a programmer than a scientist. Definitely. So I, I, I got a university degree in computer science and math. That's where I, you know, delivered Python. So yeah, pr programming is has been something I've been doing for for quite a long time. Okay, when was your degree? In so I got my BS in 1998 and my master's in 2002. Okay, was Python your the first programming language you learned, or you had some prior knowledge before Python? Yeah, I started out um, before Python was really a thing, or at least it wasn't well known. Uh, so I taught myself. Um, C, I learned it on the job a little bit in a mentorship program for a semiconductor manufacturer. So I, I wrote a printer driver in C. That was my first code. Um, and then I went off to college not knowing what I was going to do. And uh, they said, well, you really should pick a major. And I said, well, I like computers. And they said, okay, you should do computer science. I didn't even realize that meant I was going to be programming. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I was like, okay, let's try this out. And I, and I learned to love it. And, and I still do love it. So I Uh, taught myself C++. That became my go-to language for, for many years. But when I, uh, when I got to my compilers course, they said, you should write a compiler for Python. It's like, Python, what is that? That sounds ridiculous. And but did it. A uh, team, team of three of us spent one semester, built a compiler on, compiled Python to C++ statically. So supported functions and variables and even classes. And classes was actually easier to support because we were targeting C++ as the, the target to come out to. But after that, I, I knew Python fairly intimately, and I was really appreciating the language quite a bit. So I started learning, you know, taking the tutorial and learning the language. And that was before I discovered Java. So I, I knew by that point, I knew Python. I, I was also enjoying other languages like Mathematica and MATLAB and Uh, other interpreted languages that were higher level. And I was really appreciating the, the value that gave me, the way I was able to dive in and, and think more about my problem than the language itself. Okay. Yeah. So, so when, when one of my uh, schoolmates came over, he said, I learned this great language. I said, oh, great. I want to learn another one. And he said, it's Java. And I looked at it and I said, oh, well, that's kind of like C++. It's got, a, you know, it's got some nice things about it, but it just, it did not, After I'd seen um, what Python could do for me, I was I was disappointed to, to discover Java. <laughs> have you have any other language recently that piqued your interest in the same way? Definitely. So Swift is really quite an interesting language. Uh, I, I also experienced some of the disappointment, uh, you know, learning that language as well. But it has a lot of the advanced constructs, high-level syntax. Yeah, it, it definitely entices me, although it's mostly uh, aligned with um, Apple, the Apple ecosystem. Uh, the Rust language, although I haven't dived into it myself, intrigues me. You know, it sounds quite interesting. But there have been some other features around languages like Haskell and, and Erlang that that. I, I can see, you know, uh, that I miss, you know, in, in Python. So there, there are a couple of things that I really enjoy about Python, but I'd love to have something like software transactional memory, STM, you know, where where a programmer might be able to write blocks of code and let let the system deal with the asynchronous aspects of it. Although in some discussions with colleagues, maybe that's more of a pipe dream than a, than a practical uh, solution for something. I know people have tried to implement it in Python, and it's been a challenge. Uh, not that I can think of at this point. Okay. We can see the 20 years of experience in your list of package on the Python package index. Uh, do you have a favorite uh, besides set of tools in there? 
Wow. Um, yeah, Cherry Pie really shines for me. I really enjoy that web framework. So I, I discovered Cherry Pie by way of Ruby on Rails. So I learned about Ruby on Rails, and I thought, oh, wow, I wonder if there's something as transformative as that for Python. And that's what led me to something called Turbo Gears, which at the time was backed by Cherry Pie. And ultimately, I am, I found that what I really was with Cherry Pie. And, and it's, it's a, a web framework similar to Flask. You know, it's fairly low level. Um, but what it does is it allows you to model your, or take your internal models, your model of the world, your model of your problem, whatever you're, you know, writing in your application and expose that to the web. And in fact, that's, that's the decorator that you put on a, a method of, of your, of your classes, of your models to expose them to the web. It's just cherrypie.expose. And you essentially take the output of your functions or your methods and possibly, you know, configure them to go out as JSON or go out as HTML through templates or whatever. But the way you're writing isn't, isn't like Python plus something. It's, it's basically you're writing Python and it's in the hierarchy of, of your web requests. If you don't mind, we'll switch to the main topic of the interview, a set of tools to not waste too much time on other topics. Yeah, it's all good. Uh, before we start, we'll dig a bit deeper. What would be your one-minute elevator pitch for setup tools? Setup tools is go-to um, way to package your software and make it available to others so it it gives a a, a guide and a, and a tool for adding metadata who wrote the project what is the copyright of the, or the license uh what are the modules and packages that are part of it to describe all of that and then to to then build it package it up and even install it into into an environment so for you to install it yourself, for your users to install it in their environments. Okay. So it's it's the it's the tool that does the building per se, and it it's so it's a, a broad based tool with lots of plugins. So it will compile C code into Python modules and other parts. So it was built on distutils, which was part of the uh, standard library uh, distribution tools. Okay. What is the relation between? Uh setup tools and other tools such as pip or anaconda because these share similar goals except except for packaging but for installing indeed uh and that's that's a great question so the there was a time when setup tools was the only thing before pip and anaconda there was just setup tools and setup tools tried to do everything from uh from the package metadata to the building to exposing the package metadata at runtime to installing and and managing source distributions and binary distributions which were eggs and since then because of all of the complications and 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 challenges around managing such a broad scope project uh, the uh, community worked to try to separate out certain fun features and functionality. In particular, PIP set out to uh, to replace the installation functionality, and, and at this point, it essentially has, uh, especially from the perspective of the PyPA, the Python Package Authority. PIP and Setup Tools are complementary tools. They work together to create standards. They work within the PyPA to create standards and then support those standards that work across. Uh, those two tools and, and others. Things like Anaconda also do... Anaconda is interesting. It tries to build on that to provide an even more sophisticated tool set, which is beyond the scope of just Python. So Setup Tools and PIP both see themselves as inside the Python ecosystem. Anaconda sees itself as um, outside of the scope, you know, supporting installation of Python itself, all of the things inside of Python, but things also outside of Python. So libraries required for uh, like uh, building uh, within different platforms and providing cross-platform support. Okay. 
Yeah, so in a, in a way, I, I see that the set of tools for installing package is not deprecated. It's still functional, but over time, will it be kind of deprecated and left to PIP to manage? Absolutely. And I would say at this point, if it's it's not technically deprecated, but it is strongly discouraged to use easy install or even setup.py install as especially uh, under the setup tools regime to to build or install uh, python packages use pip and you'll be happier okay since when did you get involved in the setup tools project so uh, i first got involved with setup tools in 2007 and at the time i was using a repository manager a source control manager called subversion and setup tools had native support for taking uh, for using metadata from subversion in particular the file discovery feature so instead of having to write a manifest and keep that in sync with the files that you were adding to subversion uh setup tools would use that data from subversion to determine what files were available it was called the file discovery feature or, uh, and so it was an automatic thing, but it was broken on a particular version of Subversion. Uh, you know, when Subversion went from 1.5 to 1.6 and 1.6 to 1.7, um, Setup Tools was hard-coded around APIs or, or the way the file format was. And and so every time a new version came out, Setup Tools wasn't keeping up. So I tried to contribute to that to, to fix the issue. I investigated, I basically downloaded the Setup Tools source code, learned how it was doing the inference, figured out where the bug was, um, filed a bug in the bug tracker, and and then sent a patch. And my patch was unfortunately rejected because I was trying to do too much. I, I was trying to refactor things into classes that supported multiple versions of Subversion. But ultimately, it was enough to, uh, I guess, instigate the, the maintainer at the time to, to, to put out a fix. And so that was what mattered to me most. But my more involved, my stronger involvement came when Python three came out, and Setup Tools wasn't supporting Python three, and Setup Tools was sort of abandoned. It was um, it was not maintained, and to that end, uh, the Distribute project was formed, and so I was working with Tarek Ziade, who was maintaining Distribute, and that project was actively maintained, and I was really able to dig my teeth in and get and help out there. I was able to. Uh, provide windows uh, bug fixes and support and before long and this is kind of a pattern uh, you know Tarek was burned out on the project and and i was trying to get releases of fixes that i submitted to get released and and he handed over the the release process and so i became a de facto maintainer on on distribute but it always kind of bugged me that there was setup tools and distribute and they were stepping on each other, you know, distribute actually implemented the setup tools module. So there was lots of uh, conflicts if you tried to install both of them and giving guidance to users about how to deal with that was really difficult. So I set out to merge the two and that was actually one of my big achievements, I think. So the first thing I did was contact the maintainer of setup tools, you know, propose the idea work through you know any concerns or thing you know, that he might have and then basically set out to, to execute it and, and i i remember it feeling like a really daunting thing but uh, i was at pycon that year in santa clara and instead of going to the sprints i just tucked myself in a room and did the merges and reviewed them with the maintainer and the setup tools uh, 0.7 was released, I think, with the first one that incorporated um, distribute all of the distribute features. And, and so distribute at that point could go away. Okay, distribute was um, a fork initially of uh, setup tools. So that to make it easier to merge eventually, was it a, a fork initially? It was a fork, yes. Okay, okay. So we'll start with the basic features of Python setup tools to prepare installable package for from Python projects. Uh, can you explain to our users what compose a Python package? Right. So at a at its most basic level, a Python package is just Python code that is. So there are actually two 
the word package is overloaded a little bit. Um, there are Python, you know, there's the internal Python package, which is any directory that contains a dunder in it or, or in Python 3.4 or later, uh, just a, any directory is, is a Python package. And, and so that's, you know, at the basic level, if you've installed Python, you, 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 you have packages available like the URL lib package. But then there's also the distribution packages, which are sometimes just called distributions that users will create. Third-party packagers will create to distribute their projects to other people. And so if you have a piece of code that you want to make available to others, the best way to do that is to package it or provide a, a distribution package for others to download and install. Okay, but what is included in, in a package? So yeah, it's it's main, it, so it includes Python code. It also includes data that that package might use. So if you have web templates or uh, text files that it references, or you know other configuration data that might be included in the package, and then there's also this metadata that comes along with it that tells you you know who wrote the package and what versions of Python does it support, things like that. Okay. At which point is it uh, beneficial to create a Python package instead of having, let's say, simply code hosted on, on Git somewhere that some people could pull on, pull on their project and include it within their Python code? Well, at the point that you expect other users to want to pull the code and incorporate it into their project, you're probably ready to start writing a, a Python package. And and that's even if it's hosted on GitHub, because uh, without creating a Python package, pip can't install it. And it can't be, it doesn't have a name uh, it, within the, the Python ecosystem to describe it as, as a package that's present. Uh, it doesn't have a version number where you can say, give me a particular version number. It doesn't have the metadata to tell you where is it viable and where is it inviable. So, Uh, yes, you can have simple Python code just in a repository, but that's going to put a lot of demands on your users to, for them to figure out where do I incorporate this? How do I incorporate this? Um, do I copy it in? Do I, do I clone it in as a sub-module? Do I... Do I write my own package around it and then install that package? Right? Uh, in fact, that's th that might be the direction I would go if somebody gave me a repository of code that was useful to me but wasn't packaged. Okay. How do you manage uh, multiple versions of uh, Python? Because sometimes there are new features added, some behavior that might change with newer versions of Python. Uh, how do you manage a package to be compatible with newer versions? That's that's a good question, and and if you're thinking about you know across version Python two and Python three, it's no, a no, much but, harder question. Yeah, but, but no, no, I'm not thinking about Python two, Python three. That, that that's a, a major gap in between both. What I mean is, you cannot expect everybody to running to be running the latest version of Python at each point of time when they're installing package there might be older installed there might be people running uh red hat enterprise linux with like i don't know which version of python they are maybe 3.2 3.3 uh they're running older versions of python so how can you be sure that the package work across the board yeah that's a good question uh so python tries to be mostly compatible across those minor releases, 3.3 to 3.4, etc. Uh, sometimes backward incompatibilities are introduced, but they're usually highly isolated and almost always have a migration path. So you, you can, if you know what versions you want to target, um, you can, you can write your code for the lowest version and it will probably support all of the, be supported by the future versions. Um, That means, of course, that you don't have access to features in those newer versions. And so a lot of times what you can do in that case is, is find a backport for a feature. So, for example, the uh, config parser had some major improvements added to it in Python 3.6. Uh, but there was a config parser available in Python 3.5. 
So if, but if you wanted to target your application for Python 3.5, then you would need to require this third-party package, the backport of config parser on Python 3.5, and and then within your code detect uh, which version of Python you're running on and select whether you use the standard library or the the backport. Of course, the backport has support for future versions, so if you wanted to rely on the backport exclusively you could do that instead okay is there advantages of packaging your code if if let's say you're a small research team in a university and you don't intend to distribute a package because it's only to analyze some data from a specific equipment you have designed is there advantages to create a package even if you don't necessarily intend to upload it indeed yeah there are advantages and uh at the last company i worked we we ran an enterprise web scale application uh, on Python, and so we had a major Python ecosystem and a private package uh, index that we maintained. It started out this private index started out as just a flat files, but all of the advantages you get of versioning your packages and being able to encapsulate functionality into different libraries becomes uh, so the, the same advantages that apply in in the public package index and apply to the larger ecosystem apply within a team of even, you know, three or four people in that one person can be working on a particular piece of functionality and advancing that library and declaring uh, what features are compatible or incompatible and, and testing that library independently and then integrating it with a, a larger system uh, and then being able to, you know, deprecate and replace uh, these libraries independently. All of those advantages uh, are available if you use a private index. And in fact, you know, we started out, like I said, with a flat file, but we ended up moving to a project called DevPy. And I highly recommend that if you have a, an internal private project, uh, set up a DevPy server. It takes, uh, you know, about 10 minutes to set up. It's pretty pretty easy and at which point you can start uploading your packages into that private index and it will also mirror the public PyPI. so you can use that as your install you can say pip install from this index and you will get your packages plus uh, the public ones oh, okay how complicated or time consuming or cumbersome is it to create a package for simple things like at which point is it worthy of your time like how much work is left after that yeah it, it's it is a little bit of an investment that's true uh you don't get it for free there is uh you know set of tools tries to make that easy but because it's a mature project and it's gone through many iterations um sometimes the documentation doesn't point to the clearest uh, the clearest way to do things. Although I have to say the work that's been done on the uh, Python packaging user's guide, uh, and I would highly recommend starting there if you want to package, just start with the Python packaging user's guide. And it will describe what we consider, we as the PyPA, the best practices for packaging. And it will point to, and it may be you know behind here and there, but we do definitely try to keep that up to date to reflect, you know, what, how to get started. Uh, you know, here's the basic, basic thing to get started so that you can be up and running in, you know, 20 minutes and, and not five hours. Uh, and then iterate from there, right. Add, add features or whatever else. There are attempts to make things easier for simpler packages. There's a, a an independent package, you know, a, an alternative to setup tools called Flit, um, which is also supported and trying to follow the standards. And it's designed for really simple packages with minimal setup. Um, it's uh, it's newer, so it doesn't have it, it, is, it doesn't have nearly as many features, but it is simpler. So maybe something to consider. But I would say if if you are at the point of having of distributing your code to more than just a few friends at a meetup, uh, it's worth the investment to to open up the packaging user's guide and you know just add a setup.cfg or setup.py file, however it whatever it recommends, and 
and give it a spin. Um, my guess is within 20 minutes, you'll be running pip install on your project and, and you'll be uh, in a good space. Okay, good. So it's not that bad. You, you talked about the setup setup.py file. Do you need to include one? What is the... What are the, the steps to create a package? You need that file, or what? What are the files that are required to create to, to package a Python package? Right. So historically, uh, there was no there, there was no requirement that there be any particular file. Uh, setup.py was just the convention that people happened to use. Uh, they would say, "Here is a here is a repository. Here is a, a a zip file. Extract it and run." setup.py and that will install your your package and and that was you know just tutels would would handle that or setup tools would handle that but then setup to, because of that because everybody used that convention setup.py became a protocol essentially a, a de facto protocol and so pip requires a setup.py uh, to to install a traditional package um, starting with PEP 5.17 and PEP 5.18, there are new standards now that describe um, how to create a package using something called pyproject.toml. And recently, Brett Cannon published a, uh, a blog post about how to, um, you know, what is pyproject.toml and, and what does it mean for me? I highly recommend reading that blog post. I think that came out in late March or April. Uh, so the, um, but what that does is it establishes some new standards that make the need for a setup.py not necessary. Uh, it sets up protocols for your installers to say what dependencies they might have. And then pip will, will build your package based on whatever install you choose. So if you choose flit or you choose setup tools, it can do that. If you build your own, uh, that's a possibility. But um, I would say at this point, we're still at a stage where you probably want to set up.py and just for compatibility with uh, systems that have older setup tools or older versions of PIP on them. Um, and, and then, but, but adding support, you know, looking into the pyproject.toml, that's the future. And, and so I make sure that my packages support those so that they're ready to, to take on the next decade or, or whatever. Okay. And uh, you have to include a readme file, uh, information about license, uh, all of that in the package as well, or how do you integrate those? So uh, a readme is not strictly required. A license is not strictly required, but they are strongly encouraged. Uh, I believe the packaging users guide will, will give some guidance on that. Also GitHub will, you know, advise you to, to have a license and a readme. Uh, so they're, they're good practices to have. A readme actually is really powerful as a user's first documentation. So if you have no other documentation on your project, even if all of your code is what I would call self-documenting, right, doesn't have a lot of comments or guidance in it, and you have no separate documentation, the readme is the go-to place to just learn about what is this project, what does it do? Why is it of an interest to me? How can I use it? License is also important. Uh, if you don't include a license with your code, it's technically uh, not legal in, in a lot of jurisdictions for people to use that code. Um, so, it, you know, it, it, it carries a default copyright uh, in, in the United States and, and in a lot of other jurisdictions uh, just for the fact that you've written it yourself. So it's a good idea to to find a license, probably an open source approved licenses. There are ones that are called uh, open source. I think it's open source initiative, OSI approved licenses. And those will, yeah, I would look into those. It's really important to think about what you intend for your, for your code. So there are the ones that are uh, very liberal licenses like MIT and, and uh, um, I think Mozilla and Apache licenses are pretty liberal. Uh, and then there are other ones that are more restrictive and give you more control over how people are allowed to use their code. And those are things like GPL. And, and those licenses are designed to, to limit how other users are allowed to use it and, and not allow them to, 
basically copy the code and take over you know that 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 piece of the code or manipulate it in ways that interfere with the work that you've done so uh it's worth considering uh i don't spend a lot of time thinking about it i'm happy to to use these liberal licenses and let people um do what they will it's it's i'm more or less thinking about it like public domain but uh but if if there are if you want to have more control over it it's definitely an option and certainly worth considering okay would you so you're mostly using mit or bsd license for your own packages i do uh, mit almost exclusively Okay. For our listeners who want more information about that topic, in episode seven, we had a guide to software licenses in science. Uh, just <laughs> if if want, people want to dig a bit deeper into that. So we looked at the documentation for uh, setup tools and it mentions uh, distribution archives. Can you explain to our audience what is a distribution archive? So I believe a distribution archive is simply a um, zip file or a tarred uh, gzipped file that contains the sources of the distribution ready to be built uh, by setup tools again. So uh, there are binary distributions and then there are the distribution archives. Okay. And for binary distributions, are they platform agnostic? Can you run the same binary on Windows, Linux, Macs, or BSD? The short answer is no. no so the binary archives are, are built to a target. Now, there, there are many cases where the quote-unquote binary archives are essentially pure Python packages. If you have a pure Python package, um, it is portable across any platform that supports Python, essentially. The, where, where binary really comes into play is when you have extension modules that are written in C or, or Fortran or Rust, and, and thus they're compiled to a particular target. So in that case, um, they're going to be restricted to, for example, Mac OS or Windows or different flavors of Unix. And, and in, in that realm, there are standards that have tried to limit the variability of, uh, of requirements on, on built distributions so that they're fairly portable within Linux. But in all of these cases, they're still bound to that platform if there's any compiled code in them. Okay. And you talked earlier about egg files uh we also we have also seen whl format mentioned somewhere in the documentation uh what are those exactly the whl or wheel files are a replacement for eggs so eggs are essentially deprecated they're both fairly similar uh formats they're both based on the zip file format and essentially what it is is a Uh, just a, a bundled up version of the binary code. So a what's ready for a particular platform, uh, the wheel or the egg can be ex essentially extracted into some path on the file system that's, uh, that's in the Python path and run. And it's actually possible with eggs and wheels to put those on the Python path and, and they become importable. But uh, PIP mainly, you know, uses those as a, a transport format, as a, as a means of making those, of, you know, transporting them across the network in, in order to extract them into some target uh, site packages folder. Okay. I can clarify some of those questions, too. So uh, thinking a little bit more about wheel files, you know, the... Uh, The reason wheel files have sources in them is because Python is mainly interpreted and very often that's the the runnable code that you include. Um, so, but, but when you have code that's compiled, C code or, or, or similar, that's going to demand the, the wheels that you create are, are platform specific, meaning that, you know, they, they won't be portable. Okay. And yeah, by the way, we you talked about the fact that this being not portable, how does a package index deal with a non-portable package? Like, do you have to, uh, 
let's say, let's take a, take a package random like NumPy. Uh, there are C codes in there. Uh, it's probably, probably NumPy is probably all platform agnostic, probably can be run anywhere and it has been taken care of. But if there was a feature in there that was in C, C++ or Rust that was compiled, how does one create the package to distribute it to many platform? Is it do you need to compile it on different platforms and then kind of combine them when you upload them? Uh, what is the process for, for for that development? Yeah, but in older days, uh, NumPy wasn't distributed in binary versions because it was it was too complicated to do so, and even today, a lot of work. Uh, is you know because of the new systems we have with continuous integration that are freely available for open source projects now it's possible but you do actually have to build the project on every target every platform that you want to support so you, you've got to first first you want to release your source version because uh, other people will want to download a file for that you don't support but that they'll support themselves but then you need to compile for Windows and then compile for Mac. And and in fact, depending on what Python versions you support, it, you might have to you might have to uh, compile on different Python versions across those different platforms. Thankfully though, the the tooling inside of PyPI, which is backed by a project called Warehouse, uh, is is designed to facilitate most of that. So between PIP and Warehouse, uh, it, the package maintainer has to to build all of these packages and upload each one of them uh, separately. But then Warehouse will will make a nice unified view of that version of your software with all of the different platforms and the binary versions that are available for it. So that when you pip install it, pip will pip will detect what platform and and Python version you're on and find the valid paths in the index that are suitable for it and get the one that's ready you know ready built for your for your platform. So in that way, pr projects like NumPy, they can build some continuous integration pipelines that after they've done their tests and they've tagged their releases, uh, will go through and cut releases of all of the major platforms so that most people don't need a compiler or have to spend any time compiling that project. They can just download it and install it. Okay, so there's a lot of complexity hidden behind the tools for the users when they're installing package. The complexity is hidden from the users if they're installing, but if they're maintaining it, uh, there, there's a there's a lot of work that goes into building and compiling those. Yeah. So if you if you have a project that has C code, um, the complexity in packaging and distributing your packages is substantially higher than for for a pure Python package. Okay. We talked about the Python package index. How do you upload the, the your package to over there? How do you how does it make it available to download for any by anyone? So I believe the registration step is no longer required. So you'll need an account. Uh, first thing you want to do is go to pypy. that's p y p i .python.org and and register an account. Uh, create an account, and that will be your uh, your account on the package index. And from there, you can upload packages. So you will build your package using a tool like Setup Tools, or maybe a tool like PEP five one seven. That's a Python package itself, PEP five one seven, and to to build the package locally. So you'll you'll build it on on your local machine. And you'll have a wheel file and a source disk, most likely. And then you'll want to upload that somehow uh, using a, a tool like Twine. So Twine is the, P the Python package authorities, PyPA's tool for uploading packages into PyPI. And it will ask for your password. Or if you've spent a little time, you can set up a token uh, for installing it and, and use the token to upload the package. Okay. Uh, is there a review process before you upload or is already published on the fly and there's no uh, review for broken code or for malicious software? So so the projects aren't reviewed. There's not a formal review process, uh, but they there are uh, malicious code protections in place to prevent, for example, uh, using a project name that looks like uh, another project name or using names that uh, 
don't use ASCII characters, for example. So there, there are validations and protections in place, as well as a process if something is identified as being malicious uh, to to get those removed uh, promptly. Now, I, I, I'm not involved in that process, so it's, it's quite possible there are more, uh, there are other protections in place that I'm not aware of. Okay. Is there a way for developers to pull away package that they previously uploaded? Uh, I'm thinking about the, you probably probably heard the NPM um, problem that occurred uh, not too long ago about the left pad feature that was pulled away from a single developer and kind of after the web was broken. Um, I'm just wondering if there's any protection against against stuff like that. To my knowledge, there isn't protection against removing packages. So there, there are protections that prevent you from replacing a package, which means that if uh, if you have a particular version of a package in the past using a, a particular format, so you released a source disk or a wheel for your package at version 1.1, for example, uh, you can't pull that code down and put another thing in its place. So, so there is some permanence there. However, it is possible for users to pull packages, uh, at least to pull, um, you know, particular releases. Presumably, you could pu you could pull every release uh, of a package, um, and leave leave the package index with no package it will still exist. Uh, there are ways to to intervene with something like that but that that is a potential risk that uh, that could exist if for example requests were to be pulled now in most cases uh i, I don't know actually um i i guess it, i guess it could be a risk but i don't i don't think python is could be affected in the same way as node.js because node.js seems like they're pulling features out of npm all the time like on the fly and maybe they're referencing no uh, npm as uh, a library of feature so i, I don't don't think the python package index is considered as a library of feature called during uh during runtime like it's mostly like you install a package you run it if you have a copy a copy of it locally then you're fine your whole set it probably would prevent some people from installing the package temporary uh but i don't think it would have problem long term that's my point of view but maybe i'm wrong in that <laughs> NPM is definitely more vulnerable to this issue because of the way that it's the, the, the proliferation of packages is very high. Uh, the packages, because it's such a low barrier to entry there to create a package. A lot of, they have very many small paths that perform small functions like LPAD. Uh, so, you know, managing a condition where one of those goes, is, is a lot more onerous. On the other hand, um, you know, it, If you know if something so take for example if someone were to try to pull requests, that would be the kind of thing where it would be impactful enough that the the packaging the the, the Python ecosystem would respond and would find a you know solution to that in short order. So, uh, it w I think the larger granularity of packages makes Python less vulnerable to this sort of situation. Okay. And is there a provision against name collision and uh, for package names? Like if you, if someone tries to register a second NumPy, or if you want to create a package, but there was a really old crusty package that is not developed anymore, but you kind of want to have the same name, or I don't know, is there namespace equivalent, or how do you deal with the collision of names? Each package is owned by its owners and maintainers and and those owners and maintainers own that name so there's no way to have a collision per se so it, there's you know numpy is owned by the numpy maintainers and no one else can create numpy okay but let's say you have a unknown package named abc or like random string of character and somebody else arrives with exactly the same name like five years afterward and the first one isn't even maintained anymore uh, what happens so there is a process so, so yeah, the, the person who originally registered that name they own that name in perpetuity okay. unless there are a few there, there is a process where if a person has passed away or had a departure from 
from the system. You know, they're basically non-responsive. There's a process for basically reclaiming those names. Uh, that process is discouraged, right? It's it's there as an exceptional condition uh, and not meant to be uh, used frequently, but it is available if there's a, a good reason to recover a name or or replace it and certainly if it was if it was used only maliciously well then it would be uh removed and, and possibly possibly black, blacklisted okay do you have any rough idea of how many packages are available in the main python package index you know i don't i would guess it's in t tens of thousands okay yeah just random question uh, is there any other alternative to the main python package index that we mentioned Uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not aware. Well, I guess there, there's Anaconda, right? So Anaconda maintains their own repository of packages. There's also, you know, I mentioned DevPy for local development, but DevPy is also, um, they, they host a public Pi instance that uh, I use and, and other developers can use for free to upload test versions of packages to you know, ex essentially expose things in an experimental way before they're ready to put things into PyPI. And I say I use that a couple of times a year. Yeah, because once you've uploaded a version to PyPI, it's there in perpetuity. Uh, you, you can pull it, but you can never replace it. So if you have something that's volatile and you really need to just get a, a pre-release version out there for others to test out, uh, it's m.devpy.net, the letter M is in Mary. If you, you, you can go there and there's more documentation on the devpy.net website to describe how to use it. Okay. And you talked about uh, alternative setup tools to create and install package. Uh, you talked about Flit, uh, but there's also um, Patrick named Hatch and Poetry uh, that he added to the question. Uh, do you know any of those, their advantage? Like you said, Flit is... Uh, easier to use simpler like the there's less stuff required but the other ones the goals do you know any of those i haven't it, it, i'm a little ashamed to say i haven't tried out hatch or, or poetry and i i imagine they have benefits as well i, I encourage users to test those out and you know find if it suits their use cases because uh Setup tools can be a little hairy sometimes, and we're definitely looking to to find alternatives and to create, you know, basically work toward the optimal solution. So if if half poetry or flit will help us get there, uh, I want I definitely want to encourage that. We'll switch a bit to the community around setup tools. Uh, how many developers are involved uh, within the project? Oh, well, there's probably been, I haven't looked at the contributors on GitHub, but I would guess there's 30 to 40, maybe more contributors uh, of the project over time. Right now, I would say there are three active maintainers, myself, Paul Gansel, and Benoit Pierre. But there are still a lot of enthusiastic users, contributors. Uh, I struggle to keep up with the pull requests. Uh, Some of which are really trying to solve some challenging problems and others which are just scratching an itch, but it's uh, very active as a project. And um, I'd say there are, you know, probably 20 contributors in a year uh, on the project. Okay. Beside GitHub, where you have the, the, the main development of setup tools happening, uh, is there any other communication channel within the project? So much of the packaging discussions happen in the PyPA, uh, other PyPA repos. So there's PyPA uh, packaging problems. So it's PyPA slash packaging dash problems in GitHub. And that's a repository that doesn't hold a lot of code if, if it holds any at all, but it's mainly where uh, PyPA can discuss problems that span more than just setup tools, but packaging in general. There's also a discourse uh, within, I think it's Python's discourse itself. There's a packaging section there where a, a lot of important discussions are happening. There are, there, there's also the distutils sig, which is an email list, distutils-sig at python.org, I believe. And that mailing list is the longest running mailing list. And that's where a lot of user support happens. So uh, it's a good place to just ask a question if you're not sure about Python packaging 
you know, where to get started or whatever. Um, and then there's a there's an additional mailing list to PyPA-Dev. I think we're deprecating that in favor of discourse. Okay. Is Setup Tools looking for contributors for the project? Definitely. We're always open to uh, contribution. Uh, at any mature and complicated project, uh, I would say this is Blender's project, but uh, be- because a lot of the easy problems have been solved, but that's not always true. You know, we have some tickets that have been flagged as, you know, for good first contributor or, or help wanted. And, and those, uh, so if you go to GitHub and, and select those labels on the issues, that will hopefully provide an idea where, where there's some, some gaps. But we also welcome contributions in, you know, an issue that you've encountered. Just be aware that there, there are likely, you know, what do they say? Dragons, um, uh, under the covers so uh, it's uh, it can sometimes be a really challenging problem even if it seems simple on it at the surface yeah simple solution may not always work because of uh, special conditions indeed yeah what would be the skills needed to contribute to the project do you need programmers in specific programming language uh, beside python or do you need translation work uh, writing documentation what what are the the task that would be the most needed at the moment? So the, the biggest challenge right now is transitioning away from set of tools, owning everything and keeping on top of what are the best recommendations. So actually the contributions to the Python packaging users guide, but also just double checking, you know, that the, that the documentation in, you know, that we have re- reflects what's actually in use. So in, in some sense, Especially if if you're getting into the project, you've probably encountered some issues. If if you find that the documentation doesn't match your experience or conflicts with some other documentation, that's one place where we could use. As far as trying, the project is only, as far as I know, documented in English, and and so if we were to think about multi language support, that would be an area where we would not just need translation, but also. Um, a process, but as far as skills go, the basic skills, you know, you, you, <laughs> any intelligence you want to apply to this problem uh, could be useful. So anything from basic Python skills to advanced understanding of, of the packaging ecosystem uh, can be applied in the project. Okay. Setup tool is mostly targeted at a uh, software developer, let's say. What about PhD students or researcher who developed a specific scientific packaging application? Should they learn setup tools? Because over time, they will need to maintain the package. It's good. Because if it's a single project within a limited amount of time, there's they probably won't get back much uh, on the project, that the, on the package that they created. How do you feel about... Um, single time contribution to Python package, like single package created out of a PG project or a research project, a four year research project, and they created package, uh, but they don't have the resources after that to maintain it. How do you feel about that? Well, so I guess like I was saying before, if, if there's, if you don't have any audience, if there's nobody interested in downloading the package, then it's probably not worth the time to publish it. But if there are people interested in using it and then, then either, you know, you investing the time to make it publishable or, or even accepting pull requests where others will make it publishable your time, but, you know, feel free to, to hand it off. Basically, uh, you know, if, if your contribution, if your investment in it is done, um, just you know, file a ticket about it, put it in the README saying, by the way, this project is is, is abandoned and, and would like a new maintainer. And pre- presumably, you know, the users that were interested in it, ones who've downloaded it before, who are maybe even now depending on it, will almost certainly, you know, take it up or find someone to take it up and, and continue the maintenance of it. So uh, I wouldn't let... Uh, you know, set up tools be an, an impediment to that. So if it's useful to you, you can use it. Um, usually it, it tries to stay out of the way in the sense that if you have a pure Python just repo and somebody adds set up tools to it, um, you can ignore the fact that set up tools was added to it and continue to use it as you would have a tool. 
but it, that would enable anyone else to to use set of tools to release it as a project or re- release it as a distribution pack. Okay. Okay. So so it would it would still be a worthwhile contribution to distribute the package but to market as orphaned or abandoned and if someone wants to 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 keep developing it they they should take care of it over time that's what i would recommend yeah okay okay because that's probably in academia uh, or in science that's that's probably something that could happen otherwise maybe some research project long-term research project could take care of uh, code over time but <laughs> It's long-term commitment in academia is not something easy due to the the the, the way funding is achieved and uh, yeah that's that's not the best thing for a software development I would I would think sure okay uh, now we'll switch to a slightly lighter topic that we usually cover uh, what is your vision about Floss and its importance for the openness of science so I'm I'm passionate about open source software I. Uh, especially in science, right? Where you want openness, the pursuit of truth to be, you know, in the forefront. And and so, you know, part of the, you know, pursuit of truth, the advancement of civilization is, is basically sharing knowledge, sharing this growth that we have. And, you know, that's what science does and that's what open source does. And they work together in hand to, you know, the source software creates a, Uh, um, capability that that science can use to produce knowledge, which adds to creating more capability, right? And they just keep feeding back on each other. So I, I tear up when I see the work NASA has done building on, on Python, and and it's just it it really makes me feel great that a lot of this effort is available, you know, for Amberd. You know, one of my early forays into open source was a project where we were doing radiation monitoring of uh, nuclear power plants in Japan, airborne radiation monitoring. It was a collaborative project with the U.S. government and, and Japan. And we needed to present charts, uh, basically plots of, of the different radiation levels over time, you know, as part of a transparency project to make available to the pub- public The, the health concerns of, of airborne radiation. And and one of the challenges I faced was finding, this is, you know, in the early 2000s when most of the offerings for charting libraries were uh, commercial s- software that were only available in, in .NET and were, you know, had to be licensed on, on a, you know, a very expensive basis, uh, recurring licensing and, Uh, really impeded the project planning because you couldn't you, you couldn't adopt this project and let it run in perpetuity. You, you'd have to figure out a budget for how you're going to sustain this project and sustain the licensing. So you know that was I, I set out to find a project that implemented this in open source, and I found one in Ruby and ended up porting that to, to Python, and you know ended up using that for the project and and that was even running when when the fukushima reactor exploded so it, it was interesting you know being involved in that way and having you know being able to to contribute and yet those you know those that functionality goes on now that that project and it's called svg.charts at this point is uh, uh showing its age um most people don't render svg on the back end but Um, it was it was neat to be involved in kind of the overlap of science and contribution to you know freely available software so that we don't have to deal with the encumbrances of licensing and, and, and whatnot when uh, or, or commercial licensing when building building products. Yeah, and, and a lot of the development in in computer science recently, like all the Python package, Matplotlib, NumPy, and all of those, they all benefit a lot to the scientific community as well. It's a, it's like it's a, it's a win win for both. I think win win absolutely. Do you think that using Floss can have negative impact on science? Yeah, there. Are, I think there are always trade offs in in certain things, and you know, one of the disadvantages of course is that you know open source software can move slowly um when when there's a financial incentive to to build something uh, you'll build it faster and and 
And that's one of the challenges of the open source community uh, is creating the right balance of uh, incentives without uh, encumbrances, right? So, uh, and there, there have been some efforts, different companies trying to find ways to do that. You know, there's the bounty bounty source, uh, one way that you can, you know, motivate someone to work on a particular issue. There's one company I'm particularly excited about the work they're doing. They're called Tidelift. Their their whole concept is the tide that lifts all boats. And they, um, they're trying to provide a model in which open source maintainers are compensated for their work commensurate with the value they're providing. And similarly, the, the commercial entities that are profiting from those products will get back to open source commensurate to the value that they're deriving from it. And and as a by operating as a broker in the middle, they're disentangling conflicts of interest, right? They're they're allowing the maintainers to have ownership of their product and and take it in the direction they want it to go, and and it succeeds on its merits. So uh, I really like the model they've put together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's, and it's a single point of contribution for enterprise instead of. S- having to approve funds for every single project they they they, they require they could simply uh provide money to that uh organization and say we use all of those projects then divide the money among those projects less overhead Indeed. so we're almost done with the interview and we'll proceed with our classic quick questions in recent years what do you think was the most notable scientific discovery in my mind One of the the most the biggest discoveries has been the the Clipper. Uh, is it the gene clipping tool Clipper? Uh, CRISPR. Is that the right CRISPR? Ah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So CRISPR, you know, which we discovered, I, I don't know, only half a decade ago, is is set to transform the way we think about humanity and 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 health and and everything else. So I'm. In my mind, that's the, the biggest scientific discovery that we've seen in, in, I don't know, the last half century. Okay. What is your favorite text processing tool? So I use Sublime. I, I, I use, so uh, when I was on Windows, I used something called Notepad 2, which was like Notepad++. Okay. Uh, I, I like minimal um, text processing, but actually what drew me to Sublime was the multi-select feature where you can literally select multiple things at once that all match. And so within a file, mm. uh, make rapid substitutions, in, you know, in place. Yeah. Changing all your variable names quickly. Yes. Um, but because, because you're in multi-select, because you have multiple cursors, you can, you can do some clever things like jump to the end of the line on all of the lines that you have selected. And, and so you can do a lot more than just substitutions. Um, and so that, but I, if I, if I were more invested, I, I love PyCharm as well. So I would, I love the work that JetBrains have done around more sophisticated IDEs. Is there a topic in science about which you re, about which you recently changed your mind about? That's a fun question. Um, so, You know, we're, we're sitting here in, in the world of COVID-19, and I started out a little bit skeptical of, of the measures that we're taking to isolate ourselves. And there was a podcast that changed my mind about that, where previously I was uncertain what the economic factors would be. To, to isolation versus less isolation, let's say. Um, and they went back to the, and, and did studies of economic impacts across different cities in the U.S. with the 1918 Spanish flu. And I was surprised and, and, and it re, you know, I adjusted my, updated my understanding based on that too, because it indicated that actually economic outcomes were better in places that had more isolation, uh, which was a surprise to me. Yeah. That's, that's a current topic. 
Um, is there anything else we forgot to ask you about that we should have known to ask you about or anything else you'd like to share with us? I'm sure there is. And I, I can't think of anything right now. <laughs> what, what would be the best way for our listeners to, con to contact you? So I'm known as Jiraco, J-A-R-A-C-O, um, everywhere on the internet. Uh, Twitter, actually, at, at Jiraco is good. Um, or any of the projects on GitHub, you know, if there's one in particular, just reach out in an issue. Um, yeah, those are the best ways to reach me. Okay. Thank you, Jason, for this interview. It was uh, really interesting. Have a great day. It was my pleasure. Thanks. This will be all for today's episode of the Philosopher Science Podcast. I hope you enjoyed that interview. You can reach me on Twitter at DLPK. And you can reach me at underscore DBRAS or both of us at Philosopher Science. Also, we are on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Spotify, and YouTube. You can help us by recommending our shows to your friend and colleagues. Our website is located at philosopherscience.com, where you can find all of our contact information and a link to our GitHub page where you can submit subject ideas for future episodes. You can also listen to our previous episodes or find our RSS feed to get all of our interviews delivered directly to your favorite podcast player. Our current schedule is to release an episode on the first Wednesday of every month. But to the current crisis, we may have some delays. This was the last episode of our series about the Python ecosystem. After that, we are planning episodes about SPAC, a flexible package manager, and a deep dive into GNU licenses for scientific applications. We hope you enjoyed the show and that we will see you all in our next episode. Stay safe and well. Bye. Bye.